Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number eight of the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell class. Welcome. Uh, good to be back with you all again. Um, I feel like it's been a really long time since our last class, though, of course, it's just been one week as always. Um, but a lot has happened in the last week. I've uh, uh, spent like 14 hours or so broadcasting since last uh, we had class. So it feels like a long time. Um, in our announcement segment today, uh, I'm kind of excited to announce that there aren't that many announcements, actually. <clears throat> the uh, fundraising campaign, which we just completed uh, last week, has been really wonderful. We finished our, our campaign. This is you know, sort of our launch campaign for the Signum University Annual Fund. We finished that uh, having raised over $36,000, which was wonderful. Uh, we raised $7,000 during the Webathon alone uh, on Saturday, on Halloween. It's been great. And I know one thing that several people have been asking about, I know that many of you had to miss some or all of the Halloween broadcast because it was Halloween, which I totally understand. Um, so I, I have recorded, um, I did record, I should say, all of uh, the Halloween uh, sec segments, uh, special classes that we did. Um, and uh, I'm going to be, uh, we're going to be posting those. Um, so I'll, I'll try to get back to you. We haven't haven't completed that yet. Uh, I still got to do some processing of many, many files, but uh, we'll get through that stuff uh, very soon, and that stuff should get posted. Um, it should be posted, I certainly hope, by next week, so I'll make sure to uh, try to remember to give you guys uh, detailed information on where to find everything uh, that you missed next time. So, But uh, thanks again to everybody who supported us during our campaign. Uh, if you missed it, don't worry, there's still time. You can still support us. It's, it's totally cool. Annual fund will be open all year. Uh, but uh, but again, thanks thanks uh, to everybody who, uh, who, who donated and to everyone who's able to join us uh, for our special events. But this is a... Um, this is a, a normal week, which is kind of nice. Um, we do have a film film episode on Friday. So Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern time, uh, we are doing our next episode of the, uh, of the film film project, uh, where we're talking about what's going to be episode five, I believe of season one, which I'm really, I finally feel like, uh, season one is beginning to take shape as a story. Uh, and, uh, I'm excited to, uh, uh, to delve into the further adventures of Melkor in Almarin. And I think we're going to introduce Ungoliant. It's going to be so cool. Um, but anyway, uh, oh, Jordan, no, it is not too late to donate to get on the Council of the Wise. Um, if you go to the annual fund page, that's Signum University slash fund. Um, uh, you, you can use the, the links there, the same links there. And, uh, to uh, you know the the support signum banners and stuff, uh, and that'll take you to our Razu page where you can you can still make a donation, no problems, no problems, and that will still count to get you on the council of the wise. Um, very good. Okay. Anyway, so film so film on Friday, and then right afterwards, I have my uh, my my Lotro stream uh, with the adventures of Grifflet, as I'll be uh, uh, setting out to rescue Dory the dwarf, and uh, and and then going down to fight alongside Halberd the ranger. Having such a, a sort of a string of fanboy moments uh, in uh, my Grifflet stream over the last few weeks. I'm excited about that. Okay, so I, just the normal things happening this week. Totally normal, calm, quiet week, which is really fun. Um, okay, all right. Uh, uh, Karita, I think I can. I think I'll be able to indulge you in the pet wearing a. I was disappointed though, Karita, because uh, my. But this is the timing didn't end up working out. My family uh, went off to trick or treat early, um, but Karita, my 
dog's costume was so cute that she was fam- like in the neighborhood where they were t- where my kids and dog were trick or treating. Um, like people kept answering the door, and they had like already had their friends tweet them pictures of my dog. They're like, oh, "It's the famous dog!" So she was like completely legendary in that uh, in that neighborhood. She was completely adorable. Um, but my wife didn't have any really good pictures that I could just tweet out right away, so I'm going to have to actually put the costume back on my long, suf- my long-suffering but adorable dog uh, in order to take a picture that I can tweet out. But I'm totally, I'm to- I, I'm, I'm still totally going to do that. Um, anyway, <laughs> this is, by the way, just a refer. I had, uh, I had. I had been hoping I was going to have my dog in her costume uh, uh, live on camera during the Halloween webathon, but it didn't work out. So anyway, and Mick, yes, the status of the Middle Earth Chicken Run. Uh, we did in fact reach our goal. We're going to do the full Mickle Delving to Minas Tirith Chicken Run. We don't have a definite date uh, for uh, for that yet. Um, it's going to require a lot of coordination. Uh, we're going to have to get a, a rather large team together uh, to help to protect the life of uh, the of me in chicken form. Um, so, uh, and I've actually, <laughs> believe it or not, Mick, I've actually begun practicing already. I'm, I'm, I'm getting into training for the chicken run. Uh, so yeah, we're going to have, that's going to be a special event that will be coming in December, um, uh, which is going to be a lot of fun. If you, you know, you can, you, you can get a, essentially it's going to be a fun walking tour of all of Middle Earth, all the way from Mickle Delving, all the way down to Minas Tirith. Um, so again, especially those of you who have never seen, uh, Lotro the game, it'll be a really neat, uh, opportunity for you to see how they do sort of the whole landscape and we'll be you know following uh kind of roughly actually in the path of the fellowship we won't do that exactly you can do that in the game you can even find their campsites and things like that but um we're gonna have to focus on keeping me alive uh we have to prioritize keeping me alive rather than following in the precise footsteps of the uh of the fellowship so there, uh, there will be some spots that we'll miss, but anyway, we'll we'll certainly be following the general path. So it'll be great, and of course, it'll be the extra fun and always uh, comical element uh, that I am uh, that I will be uh, playing a chicken uh, while doing this. Um, yeah, Sarah, I'm totally training, uh, totally training for this. Like, I mean, into, I just uh, I just went all the way uh, from Mickle Delving to north of Anuminous today, just to. You know, get into get into. Okay, well, I was about to say fighting trim, but that, of course, is woefully inaccurate. Really, fleeing trim is really what I'm sort of getting into. So, um, we'll, we'll see. So, we'll be announcing that soonish. I hope. Again, we have a, a lot of details to work through, um, but um, uh, but anyway. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Gerald, the uh, the learning not to die is uh, is uh, it's tricky. You know, it does take practice. Um, and, uh, I did get a little bit, I did in fact die once, uh, uh, this morning in my trial run, but, uh, it's okay. I, but I had no protection either. So I was, I was doing it on my own, made it after only one death, which I thought was a fairly good performance for a warm up act. So, uh, we had a bunch of people practicing together. So we had, uh, a, a bunch of Mythgard people sort of swarming around. We had about a dozen chickens running around the Shire, um, uh, and out into the Blue Mountains, uh, last night, actually, uh, so that was uh, that. W- that was a lot of fun. Yeah, Philip was there. One of the uh, the uh, uh, I was about to say gaggle of chickens, but that's of course perfectly incorrect. We weren't geese after all. We have some dignity. Um, so uh, anyhow, 
I'll stop prattling on about chickens. Let's get back to English magic because it is time uh, for... Uh, oh, no, but Karita, you're absolutely right. We really should have a chicken training montage. That would be uh, that would be really funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly, with music from Rocky. Uh, totally agree. Totally agree. That, that actually needs to happen. I'll work on it. I'll work on it. Okay, anyway, on to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um, just to kind of a glance ahead, as we're, of course, getting, uh, you know, as, as uh, uh, you know, d- doubtless you will be noticing, too, that uh, the book is getting heavy in your left hand and slight in your right hand as we uh, proceed on here. So we're getting towards the end, but, of course, we're not uh, quite near the end of the class. Remember the way that this is going to go. So tonight is the, technically, the penultimate night discussing the book. Well, that's not really true, because we're going to do a session after that. So, you know, Today, tonight is at least the penultimate reading assignment for the book, and we're meant to read through the end of the book for next week's class. Um, I have then scheduled another uh, sort of a, a bonus week in the middle, and my goal there is that, you know, for just on the offhand chance that I don't complete 100% of my slides for next time, um, then we'll uh, be able to have a chance to sort of finish up that discussion. But also, I want to make sure to... Uh, try to leave time to discuss things that you guys want to talk about, too. Um, Obviously, as we've been going through, there have been a bunch of things about the story that have interested me that I've been kind of drawing out and, and, uh, and focusing on as we've been going through. But obviously, the stuff that I'm interested in and the stuff that I've been uh, choosing to talk about is not all that there is to say or all that there is to talk about about this book. So uh, that week, that is the week after next, also provides you the opportunity to, you know, sort of not ask me questions as if I'm the expert. Of course, I've only done, I'm not quite done with my second reading of this book. Um, But rather, for you to raise topics and issues and, and, uh, you know, and sort of lines of inquiry that I have either neglected or just haven't had time for or whatever, you know, I'd be, I'd be really interested to sort of steer our, you know, our talk on, uh, you know, the week after next in sort of, you know, whatever other directions you guys were interested in. So um, just be thinking about that. Um, If you have suggestions for things that you would like to talk about, feel free to email me. Um, You can email me uh, at uh, olson at mythguard.org, and I'll get that, and uh, and then we can... uh, we can... We can see. Well, I'll, I'll address as many things as I can during that class session. So, but then after that, remember, we're still not done. At that point, I then have scheduled three more. I think three more class sessions in which I want to talk about the miniseries adaptation, which I've still not seen yet. Um, I've, I've, I'm trying to stay focused on the book and not get confused uh, with thinking about the uh, miniseries yet. So, but I'm gonna. I'm looking forward to watching the miniseries as soon as we get through. Uh, this, the book here for the second time. So then we're going to spend at least three class sessions talking about the adaptation and looking at what they did uh, during the miniseries, which which I think should be a lot of fun. So, um, so that's the plan, and that's what's that's why we're going to end up going well into December here, I think. Um, so uh, anyway, cool. All right, um, let's uh, let's then having glanced then at the road ahead. Let's uh, let's go ahead and carry on so the one the actually the only two slides i did not get to last time um were thinking about the prophecy the uh, uh the meeting between vinculus and stephen black uh in the carter's wagon um and i wanted to look at vinculus's third utterance of the prophecy right he's de- he had to deliver the prophecy to three people to mr Norrell, to jonathan strange and to stephen black 
um, and they're talking about their skin, right? Um, and uh, he's uh, he's wonder he's asking him about his skin, like why his skin is blue, why it has all these markings that look like writing on it, right? And Vincuous says, "That is not what my skin means," said Vincuous. "Means," said Stephen. "That is an odd word to use, yet it is true. Skin can mean a great deal." Mine means that any man may strike me in a public place and never fear the consequences. It means that my friends do not always like to be seen with me in the street. It means that no matter how many books I read or languages I master, it will never be anything but a curiosity, like a talking pig or a mathematical horse. Vincuous grinned. And mine means the opposite of yours. It means you will be raised up on high, nameless king. It means that your kingdom is waiting for you, and your enemy shall be destroyed. It means the hour is almost come. The nameless slave shall wear a silver crown. The nameless slave shall be a king in a strange country. Um, this is, I find, the, the sort of the play here. Vincuous Vincuous uh, is a character that I really liked when I first read the book. On a second reading, I've decided that I absolutely love Vincuous <laughs> as a character. Um, I like him ten times more on a second read than I did on uh, on the first read. Um, I and in part, one of the things I'm going to be focusing on today uh, is the um. um well, to use the fancy terminology, the epistemic regime, that is the, the, the knowledge, the, uh, the, the amount of knowledge that we have as readers, and the way that, uh, that Susanna Clarke manipulates that as we go through the book. We talked about this some last time. I wanted to talk about that, sort of focus on that even more this time uh, as we read through, uh, as we sort of go through tonight's section. Vinculus is really fun because from the beginning, what we begin to see more and more clearly, w- one of the things that, that, that to me makes Vinculus so much fun is that as our own understanding increases, um, the more and more we come to see that Vinculus is the one who has understood from the beginning, right? You know, his own understanding of everything, you know, he's, on the one hand, he's still a really small, he plays a bit part, Right, he's not a major actor. He's not a. He's not. You know, I, I rem- when I was, I don't even remember where in the book I was exactly. Um, I was really hoping that Vincuous was the Raven King in disguise uh, when I was first reading the book. Um, you know that he would turn out to be the Raven King himself. I thought that would be awesome. Um, but uh, but no, it turns out he has really a smaller role than that in the story. Um, but but nevertheless. Although he has this small role, the role that he has is he's 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 the one who, in at least a uh, in in at least a, a limited sense, knows knows everything right from the beginning, um, and slowly our own understanding has caught up with him. And I love the way in which, for instance, his prophecy when he first utters it to Mr. Norrell sounds to us, the readers, like nonsense. I mean, when Mr. Norrell says, oh, you know, any street charlatan can spout this kind of thing, it sounds quite remarkably like a thing that a charlatan would spout to sound really impressive. I mean, it sounds like it's, you know, there's no reason to think it's more than that. Um, When we hear it again with Jonathan Strange, it sounds a little different. When we hear 
it you know certainly this snippet of it here it's very it's very different notice the difference right the nameless slave shall wear a silver crown think of the difference the different relationship that we as readers have with that statement now it's already happened right? he's got a silver crown we saw him get it chapters ago in the you know the first time we hear the prophecy it's again it's we don't we don't really know what it means or even whom it's talking about because remember it's before we've even met Jonathan Strange um, so, I mean, he's in the title, but Mr. Norrell has been the only central character in the whole book to that point. Um, so when he's talking about the first and the second, we we don't we don't really. I mean, we may guess, of course, that it's this other Jonathan Strange person, um, but but we don't even really know that much, right? The second time, at least we can kind of begin to. I mean, again, if you're like me, then when you get to Jonathan Strange and hear the prophecy again, you're like, oh, okay, wait, the first, the second, okay. But we still don't really understand what the things are referring to, right? When he when it's saying things about the first magician and the second magician, we don't again, we don't really know what those. Uh, we don't know yet, anyway. We certainly haven't seen um, what that uh, what those prophecies are talking about here. We've now we, we we've heard this before. The nameless slave shall wear a silver crown. The nameless slave shall be king in a strange country. It was part of the prophecy. We heard it way way back in part one, right? But now we've seen it happen, right? Then Stephen uh, Stephen Black's namelessness has already been made a big deal of, right? The gentleman with the thistle down hair has emphasized that Stephen's true name is lost. The name that his mother gave him in her own native language has been lost. The only name that he has left is the name that was placed upon him by those who enslaved him, right? By the English. And of course, uh, the, his name, it's, you know, his, his surname, certainly, Black, um, is merely a descriptor, right? And of course, as he points out in the second paragraph here, not a neutral descriptor, right? He is, he has been named different, right? He's been named, he's been named by his skin. Um, he is Stephen Black, right? Stephen the Black. That's his name, right? The name that's put upon him. It's not his true name. It's the name that is put upon him uh, by his white enslavers, by his white oppressors. Certainly this is how the gentleman with the, with the thistle-down hair um, speaks of it. Uh, oppressors, that is. He never, he, the gentleman, never uses the word, the, the word white. He seems to be, if anything, um, the gentleman seems to be perfectly oblivious to race. Um, apart from that first scene when the two of them seemed like a matching set, right? A striking contrast between Stephen's dark good looks and the gentleman's very fair good looks with his bright silver hair, right? Um, uh, apart from the fact that they looked so delightfully complimentary, you know, like, I don't know, like a salt and pepper shaker or something, right? Uh, apart from that fact, um, apart from that moment, there there hasn't been any slightest indication that the gentleman even notices that Stephen's skin color is different, right? I mean, so that's 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 totally off the table. He, he seems to be genuinely... Um, genuinely blind to the distinction of race in that way. Um, yeah, good. Michael uh, Jeffkowski points out that the fairy can't tell that Stephen has a different skin color from the Arabs. Um, right, exactly. He takes him back to Africa, says, you know, to his home country, and he's like, I believe I believe these are Arabs, right? No, good, Michael. He doesn't even... He has no idea, right? Um, and we, we have that um, 
clear ex- clear illustration that even when he's attempting, right, even when he thinks he's uh, sort of got things pegged, he's not really getting it. He's not really understanding. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, good. Jordan Sunderland says the gentleman's one good ad- one good attribute. At least he's not a racist. Uh, now, if you could just stop killing children, well, but Jordan, you can't have one without the other, right? Now, come, come now. Let's not cherry pick, right? Because indeed, in the gentleman with the thistle down hair, they're of a piece, right? Uh, it's he seems to not notice the difference between Stephen Black and Sir Walter Pole uh, for the sa- that. For the same, I mean, we were talking about ants and things before, right? That uh, um, you know that he just, he does not. He obviously has no real value for uh, you know for human life, and he certainly doesn't think about things like uh, you know human rights and things like that. Um, he seems just as he seems to have no re- no more regard for the lives of humans than we have for the lives of animals. Um, so he doesn't seem to be any more. Uh, uh, any more um, aware of the, uh, you know, sort of sensitive to the distinction among them than we might be um, of different uh, of different kinds of of ants. Exactly as Sarah says, he doesn't see the the distinction of shades in a different species. Exactly. Now he does have an appreciation for beauty, right? So there is that. But again, even there, there's almost the sense of again. It's not like he's seeing them. It's he's seeing. Uh, it's more like he's seeing himself, right? He he wants to take those that are like him. Um, again, remember what strikes him about Stephen is that the two of them look so look so well together, right? Um, he likes Stephen because Stephen sets him off visually, um, and so, but but again, that's not even in saying that he appreciates the beauty of a beautiful woman or the beauty of a beautiful man um, is not to say that he is sensitive to humans and humanity or, and even in a sense uh, sensitive to their appearance. Um, rather, he seems to, uh, he seems to, to still to, 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 to disregard them. Again, to me, it seems to be all of a piece. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah, good. Uh, Karita, I th- I agree. I would extend it past race. Um, he says class doesn't seem to mean much to him either. He values kingship somewhat, but physical beauty is much more important. Definitely, uh, uh, the um, physical uh, beauty certainly trumps trumps class and obviously race uh, as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so. But anyway, John, I agree with you. Back to Vinculus. Um, so, nameless king. And again, so this is this is now you know. Whereas before, again, you th- go back to where we were before in Mister Norrell's house, where we were like, "What is this guy talking about? And is there any value to this?" I mean, of course, I, I've you know read enough fantasy books that when I got to this prophecy, and it was indented and in verse, needless to say, I was like, hmm, I should pay attention to this, right? It might be important later on. But again, from within the frame of the book that we've gotten to that point, other than that sort of highly external cue, um, in my own kind of conditioning as a reader, I, I, I uh, you know, again, we didn't have any reason to know one way or another for sure, but now again, it's not just that we know more about it. It's like obvious, right? The nameless slave shall wear a silver crown, the nameless slave shall 
she'll be king in a strange country. It's now repeating stuff that we've known for hundreds of pages, um, and that we've already seen happen. It's now it's now merely stating what is to us perfectly obvious. Um, but um, okay. Um, Let's see. There's something else I was going to say about this. Uh, never mind. Lost my train of thought there, but that's okay. Um, the um, When Stephen Black... Oh, no, okay, sorry. <clears throat> as often happens, as soon as I move on, I do remember what I was going to say. Um, Vinculus's purpose, right? First of all, of course, we can't pass by without observing the fact that we now, <clears throat> we now have seen Vinculus's skin, right? And based on what we've seen before, we can begin to have an idea. Remember when we were talking about the, right, the King's Book and, uh, you know, that, that, that precious, precious book, which was eaten um, by uh, Vinculus's father uh, when he committed that horrifying book murder, right, on what might have been the most precious and valuable book in all of England, right? And Childermas's statement that in some way that nobody, not even Norrell, could understand, um, the book had, the inheritance had passed to Vinculus, the greatest glory and the greatest burden, right, that had ever been placed on anyone, and, and nobody had any idea, and we as readers didn't have any idea um, what that meant. You'll remember, of course, the clue that we got, the sort of double clue that we got um, from Childermas's cards. When we were looking at Childermas's cards, and the one which seemed to be Vinculus himself, right? And which Vinculus himself immediately recognized and identified with. Remember, he sort of smiled and tapped it familiarly, right? Remember the, the description of that card. How it, it had been written on the back, it had been drawn on the back of a piece of writing, and the writing had come through the page, so it looked like the figure had writing imposed all over it. That's one clue. I said it was a double clue, because you'll recall the next card was Jonathan Strange, and Jonathan Strange, as you will remember, was depicted exactly, literally true. That is, the picture wasn't symbolic. You know, he had a club that was sprouting leaves in its hand, and you can do a symbolic interpretation of that, you know, sort of an allegorized interpretation of that. And indeed, that kind of allegorical interpretation seems to be what the whole situation of, you know, reading and interpreting the cards seems to ask, right? Um, but, um, remember, we get the cards that are, represent Childermas's life in some sense, and he can understand the interpretation because he's lived his life and has the key to it. But Vinculus can't read it; neither can we, really. Um, but uh, but anyway, um, but remember that picture of Jonathan Strange turned out not to be symbolic at all, but quite literal. In fact, quite a quite a, a, a descriptive portrait of exactly what he was going to look like when Vinculus met him. Right? It was to reveal to Vinculus what you know whom he was going to to, to meet. And it was going to be exactly like this. And, you know, a man in nice clothes carrying this club with the leaves sprouting off of it because Jeremy Johns had just cut it off the hedge, right? So that's, um, that kind of, the fact that the card was depicting what the thing would literally look like, that's the sort of the other half of the double clue, right? So then when we come back to the Vinculus card with the writing 
superimposed over the guy, and now it turns out that, in fact, also was a literally accurate description, right? That the answer to the book riddle, well, or at least the initial or the superficial answer to the book riddle, is the book seems to be written all over Vinculus. It appears to be tattooed all over Vinculus. Um, his skin is covered with what we, I think, have to conclude is the king's writing. Somehow, in some sense, the book that his father ate is literally written all over his skin. Um, so isn't that, uh, isn't that interesting? Um, on the subject of Vinculus's father, though, um, remember what Vinculus's father was hanged for? the crime that Vinculus's father was hanged for? The last person in England to be to be hanged for this? Uh, yes, Nick and Sarah and John. Book murder. Right? He committed book murder by destroying the book. Um, it's... I didn't make this connection the first time through. Um, but the second time reading it through, I couldn't help but remember that story. Um when we got to the what happens to Jonathan Strange's book, right? Uh, and the outrage over what happens uh, to, you know, to, after the publication of Jonathan Strange's book. Mr. Norrell is, is not quite committing book murder, but it's kind of close, right? With that, just having that category in our heads, right? Um, it's a book of magic, that we that Jonathan Strange has written, right? He has written a book of not a book about magic, a book of magic. Um, and to destroy a book of magic is book murder. Now, it's not it's not been completely removed, right? Mr. Norrell retains a copy, Jonathan Strange retains a copy. It hasn't been obliterated from the face of the earth. And yet again, it is like it is at least like book murder. Um the crime that he commits is in that, you know, sort of remembering that, sort of the more outrageous. But of course, remember Mr. Norrell's perspective on this, right? Like the time when he uh, buys up all the books at that famous auction and then doesn't share them with anybody or tell anybody about them, um, he's, you know, sort of puzzled by everyone's outrage because he's just doing what he's always done, right? Um, in a sense, of course, he's still doing what he's always done. Uh, he's taking it a step further, right? But again, it makes you think, Mr. Norrell, in a way of speaking... Mr. Norrell has committed book genocide, right? Um, he hasn't destroyed the books. So, you know, in a sense, he sort of technically gets off. But he has removed the books. He has, he has deprived everyone else of the books. It's, it's at least, you know, sort of book, uh, uh, what, uh, book uh, kidnapping, I guess. Um, uh, 
Uh, anyway, yeah, it's uh, it, I don't know exactly how to classify it, but I think I mean it's an interesting thing to think about. I think um, it's an it's an idea that I would kind of that I, I sort of feel like I need to sort of wrestle with uh, more. But I do think the whole concept of book murder um, does to me bring a kind of indictment, really, against Mr. Norrell, or gives us a, a, a kind of uh, terminology to use. Um, against that idea that to to destroy a book of magic is is like murder, right? It is it is a crime that is like murder, like murder in a couple ways, like it for its severity, right? For 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 what a big deal it is, um, like it perhaps in other ways as well. Um, Anyway, yeah, good. Philip Lord says, uh, uh, Lord Byron certainly feels that it's serious. Uh, yeah, exactly. Philip, I love that that point about how I... Uh, that really hits Byron where he lives, right? You know, the idea that uh, uh, that anyone could just, like, destroy a book that had just been released for publication. It's, it's uh, There are a few things that are sacred to Lord Byron. Can I just say, I absolutely... Just as a side note, uh, you know, I mean, as a, as a student of English literature, I just love Byron's involvement in this story especially the way that 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 she links it um with manfred and and of course the fact that jonathan strange shows up when uh when when byron and uh and and mary shelley and and percy shelley and john polidori are uh, are are having their famous get together uh in in uh, in switzerland um it is it is it is it is it is fantastic um, i did a lot of work. I wrote a huge paper in undergrad about John Polidori. Uh, John Polidori wrote a book. Um, you may remember that was a. It was a, uh, or you may know the story. You probably know the story about how during that time, when 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 Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley and Byron and John Polidori were all together there in Switzerland, they all said that you know, they're all going to write like spooky stories. They all decided they were all going to write a um, a thing. And and yes, John, exactly. That's the gathering that produced Frankenstein. M- uh, Mary Shelley wrote or began to write what became Frankenstein. Um, uh, Byron wrote this. Uh, Shelley wrote this really bad, like ghost story. Shelley didn't produce much of anything, I don't think. Percy Shelley. Um, I don't remember exactly what he was trying to do, but it didn't work out. Um, Byron produced this, uh, uh, this, 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 this quite sort of pitiful ghost ghost story. Um, John Polidori wrote a book too. So there are basically two books that emerged from this, one by John Polidori and one by Mary Shelley. And uh, uh, Shelley's, uh, of course, is obviously the good one, Mary Shelley's. And, um, uh, and, but John Polidori wrote The Vampire. And uh, I, I, that's, it's John Polidori's Vampire that I wrote, um, that I wrote my uh, undergrad paper on because it's one of the really early versions of uh, vampire stories in England. Um, which were really not very well known at all in the pre-Bram Stoker Dracula uh, world. Um, uh, I mean, English world, that is to say. Um, but uh, anyway, so I just I, I was I was just delighted uh, I, I, <laughs> when Strange in his letter uh, refers to and he and it's just so scathingly and slightingly he speaks of John Polidori, who who really does seem to have been a bit of a twit. Um, anyway. Uh, also, just uh, a really fun, really fun set of Easter eggs uh, for a uh, um, for a for a literature geek. 
um, just as I'm sure there were probably lots of really fun Easter eggs uh, for like military history buffs in the whole uh, Napoleonic War section of the book. But anyway, um, uh, so anyway, just I'm getting distracted by Byron. I'm not going to talk about Byron as much as I might uh, do, but um, uh, but anyway, I just wanted to register the fact that I find that whole section really delightful, and and uh, the uh, sort of the way in which Byron is talked about, and the horror with which Byron is uh, is is uh, you know his name is invoked among English families of reputation uh, abroad. Uh, really fun. Yes, and you're right, Rickel. Byron would be extremely disappointed that I am not spending more time talking about him. Um, but of course, Rickel, that does prompt me to uh, think about the uh, uh, to talk about him more. <laughs> ironically, is that you notice the um, notice the mirroring that happens here, right? Um, who whom is Byron just like? What other character is most similar to Byron? the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, right? Both of them who, who who can't bear to have conversation linger very long on anyone else, right? The, the self-absorption of the two of them, the vanity of the two of them, the the um, the way in which both of them, you know, so w- when we see sort of the, the kind of Byronic disdain for other, you know, his, the, you know, the contrast between, um, between Dr. Graysteel's concern for Jonathan Strange as a friend, not to mention potential future son-in-law, um, and Byron's sort of morbid interest, right, uh, and how he just comes to sort of watch Jonathan and be sort of, you know, uh, uh, delighted in his madness, right? Um, he is just like the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, right, uh, in his sort of impersonal treatment of people, right? His sort of lack of concern about other people as people. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> and Kay, you're right. Kay says, between the two of them, I'm sure they seduced all the beautiful women of Europe at one point or another. Exactly, yeah. They both see a beautiful woman and want to add her to their collection, right? And with about as much... Um, you know, uh, a moral qualm or emotional investment, it seems, right? In different senses, of course. Um, there is, uh, uh, and again, it's, it's it's another thing, and I, I'm remembering, um, Kay, it's sort of reminding me of that, the scene that we were talking about, the, about the girl who, you know, danced to death and bled through her skin, remember, in the story of the Raven King's army. Um, you know, that contrast between... Th- the sort of very human motivation of sexual desire, which is kind of what the girls seem to have had in mind, right, when they came to the camp, um, and yet what they're greeted by is something quite quite different. Um, uh, you know, they seem to take to the kiss well enough, but that doesn't seem to be where their interest lay, and it's, they get the same thing with the gentleman, right? He collects beautiful women, not for some kind of harem, because that sort of sexual desire seems to be a human thing. His desires are different. You know, his, uh, um, you know, what he is pleased by is very different. But anyway, um, and it also, therefore, to me, again, kind of serves to undermine Byron, right? Where he is sort of, in him we see a kind of imitation of what the gentleman really is, right? That kind of inhuman attitude towards other people, but still only being affected 
by a person who remains himself himself very human, um, as again is revealed by his uh, his great perturbation about the idea of published books disappearing by magic. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. So th- there's uh, that. It's interesting how in this way. Lord Byron seems to serve as a kind of foil for the gentleman with with the, the thistle down hair, um, which again, uh, the idea, uh, Rico, of uh, Lord Byron appearing in a story only as a foil to one of the main characters. Oh, oh man, how he would have hated that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, anyway, okay. Now, now I'm going to move on to slide number two. Okay, I'm glad I remembered what I wanted to go back and talk about. Anyway, okay, so now here we get to, again, Stephen Black has now reported Vinculus's words to the gentleman. And here's the gentleman's explaining what the prophecy really is, right? The nameless slave, well, is that me, sir? Wait, sir, well, that is me, sir, is it not? And this prophecy seems to tell how I will be a king. Stephen, of course, has come to the same obvious conclusion uh, as we have, right? Again, that is me, sir, is it not? This is not, you know, he's not He's not doubtful. Why should he be? He has a silver crown, right? He is this, the nameless slave. He has a silver crown. He's been told again and again how the gentleman is going to make him king of England, right? So, you know, I mean, it seems obvious, right? Well, of course you are going to be a king. I have said so, and I am never wrong in these matters. But dearly as I love you, Stephen, this prophecy does not refer to you at all. Most of it is about the restoration of English magic, and the part you have just recited is not really a prophecy at all. The king is remembering how he came into his three kingdoms, one in England, one in Fairy, one in Hell. By the nameless slave he means himself. He was the nameless slave in Fairy, the little Christian child hidden in the Bruh, brought there by a very wicked fairy who had stolen him away out of England. Stephen felt oddly disappointed, though he did not know why he should be. After all, he did not wish to be king of anywhere. He was not English. He was not African. He did not belong anywhere. Vinculus's words had briefly given him the sense of belonging to something, of being part of a pattern, and of having a purpose. But it had all been illusory. Okay. One of the consequences of this, clearly, right? Yeah, Michael, I also don't know by what standards that other fairy could be considered wicked. Um, what the gentleman mean? what the word wicked means when used by the gentleman, I, I don't know exactly what that word means to him. I don't feel that I have a sufficiently intuitive grasp of his moral code um, to... Uh, to really comprehend his the, the significance of that word uh, to him, um, but anyway, um, one consequence obviously of this interpretation of this explanation on the part of uh, of the gentleman is the connection between Stephen and the Raven King, right? Um, and of course, once that connection is made here. You know, page 680, we're now, you know, almost three-quarters of the way through the book. Um, And once this is made, I, um, you know, it's it's sort of the moment where where I find myself thinking, why didn't I make that connection before, right? Um, Black, king, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, he's going to be King Black. He's going to be the Black King, which is one of the names of the Raven King, right? Um, but of course, we see the parallels as well, right? He too was nameless. The only name that he, the only names that he had, were the name that he took to himself and the name that he was given. We hear his name. We don't actually. It's never written, right? But Stephen, um, or not Stephen, sorry, uh, uh, Jonathan Strange, hears his name, John Osquass's fairy name, uttered several times by fairies, right? And we hear it once in this passage um, by the gentleman. Um, we never hear what that is, right? But that's not John Osquass's real name, right? That's the name given to him by the oppressor's of his slavery in the society in which he grew up, just like Stephen Black is Stephen Black's name, raised among the white Englishmen who enslaved his family, um, you know, and owned the slave ship on which his mother died giving birth to him. Um, so, John Osclass's situation is parallel to Stephen Black. So, despite the fact that Stephen Black was born a slave and is raised in an alien culture, um, yet he still retains, somehow has the native bearing of a king. Remember one of the very first passage we ever looked at about Stephen Black, where the other servants just find themselves obeying him, um, and they're seeing, and, and this 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 leads to this rumor that he was he was a native king. Uh, you know, he he was really a prince in his native Africa um, because he uh, because he has that. Um, uh, you know, because he has that 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 sort of air of authority. Well, there seems to have been something about little John Osclass, too, right? Um, yeah, good. Sarah Lagarde says that John Osclass's fairy name translated to Starling, we're told. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's a fascinating parallel, and again, it's one that's going to sort of bear thinking about more as we go through, but of course, um, the... Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, uh, K. Ben Abraham, and thinking about what um, "wicked" means to the gentleman, uh, she uh, she suggests very plausibly that it probably means ugly. Um, <laughs> yeah, quite, 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 quite possibly, quite possibly, um, uh, at least by his standards or from his point of view, I suppose. Um, but um, yeah, John Moline su suggests perhaps means nothing more than doing something that the gentleman doesn't like. Uh, also, it seems quite likely. Um, uh, opposed him or attempted to thwart him in some way uh, I would also perhaps, I think, uh, make you a strong candidate for wickedness uh, in uh, in the gentleman's world. Um, anyway. Um, okay. So, so, so we have this parallel established between the two of them. But note also what's happening here. What's happening here is the... Uh, the gentleman is telling us quite clearly, right, quite um, confidently, no, 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 here's what that prophecy really, it's not even really a prophecy, right? Here are what, here's the real meaning of those, because he knows, right? We might guess, we might attempt to interpret it, but he knows, right? So he's just telling us, here's the reality behind those words. Here's what it really means. And... So there we have it, right? Now we have the real insight. We know it actually has nothing to do with Stephen Black. It has to do with John Osclass. In fact, it's just a description of John Osclass's previous career. Um, 
but I reserve my judgment on that point, right? I'm not sure the gentleman's correct about that. I'm not sure that he sees the whole truth, as I think we have some good reason to doubt whether or not the gentleman with the thistle-down hair knows quite as much as he thinks he does, or that he really has the complete picture about everything. One thing that um, we begin to see more and more strongly as we move into these latter sections of the book is that, as I talked about last time, we went from being clueless and uncertain about what the heck was going on and what magic was and how it worked and anything about it. Everybody seemed to know more about magic than we did back in you know the first ten chapters of the book. And now we know more than anybody else knows. Now all of a sudden we, as readers, are the ones who have the insight and who can listen to things that Norrell and Strange and the gentleman and Stephen Black and Vincuous and all of them say, and we can and we sort of sit here and nod sagely to ourselves or shake our heads with a sad smile saying, Oh, you fool, you just don't understand. You just can't see the big picture like we can. Right? Um and I think that that's a really um, that that's a really fascinating place that this has put us in, and so I think that we're we have several good reasons, therefore, to be a little bit skeptical that the gentleman really sees as fully as he does. And and Kay, I certainly agree that there's no reason to suppose that a prophecy like any text has only a single interpretive layer to it. Yes, the fact that the gentleman might be right, the fact that this does in fact seem to tell Jonas Glass's story does not necessarily um, does not necessarily lead us to believe that it's the only way that we can possibly under understand. And John, I think that's a great point. John Moline says that uh, the the gentleman his story goes on a downward arc um, where he seems if not all powerful, certainly extremely powerful at the beginning. We see him fearing attack and and appearing vulnerable and just flat being wrong. Um, you know, all this sort of moves on. And yeah, as Noam says, all this happened before and shall happen again. Yes, yes. Um, and Noam, I agree. Noam says, the gentleman is wrong on account of the timing. Um uh, the saying that is, you know, the the because you're right, Noam. It says the slave will be king. It's not a historical. The slave became king. He wants to say, and he says it's not really a prophecy. He is remembering how he came into his three kingdoms, right? Well, but Noam, you're right. It doesn't sound like that, right? Um, it sounds like it's now. You know, again, maybe the gentleman would say no. It's framed that way. Right, it's like a prophecy about a thing that's already happened. But but really, he's just talking about what did in fact happen. Um, but no, I absolutely agree with you. That's not in fact how it reads. Um, anyway, we'll see more of this too. Let's look at the main subject that I want to talk about today: madness. Um, because increasingly, as we get through the book, I've come to suspect that madness is, in essence. Um, one of the primary themes or sort of the primary um, uh, uh, well vehicles I guess uh, in the whole book um, you know in there is a sense I would say in which we could we could say this book is really about madness almost um, but 
let me not make cryptic generalizations. Let's talk about let's talk about passage. So first, recall what we already talked about before, because Clark reminds us in detail several hundred pages later on um, of this important fact. Um, they're talking about curing madness by magic, right? I never heard of a single instance of an Orient magician curing madness. Their attitude towards madness seems to have been quite different from ours. They regarded madmen as seers and prophets, and listened to their ramblings with the closest attention. How strange! Why? Mr. Norrell believed it was something to do with the sympathies which fairies feel for madmen, that and the fact that madmen can perceive fairy spirits when no one else can. Strange paused. "'You say this old woman is very mad?' he said. "'Oh, yes, I believe so.' This is, of course, the moment when he is recognizing his big plan. And, um, uh, and by the way, tincture of madness, I think, is just awesome. I just, I love that phrase, you know, that, that how he makes, like, the tincture of madness, um, uh, that you can, you know, distill in drops into your drink and make yourself mad. Uh, absolutely love that. But anyway, um, remember that this is not, of course, a mere repetition of the, you know, of this 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 important fact about the Orient magician's attitudes towards madness. Right? We've heard this exact thing before, but I think it sounds different when we hear it again, now, at this point in the story, in the context in which we now hear it. Um, remember, before we were hearing it in Norrell's voice. Norrell was, was, was lecturing about it. And his lecturing about it was done... Fr- we, at least one of the things that really strikes me is how very condescending, how very superior... Norrell sounds in retrospect, right? Um, the uh, the fact that the Oriots revered madmen, right? That they that they uh, uh, they listened to the ramblings of madmen with the, with the closest attention um, seems not to have even suggested to Norrell that perhaps the Oriots knew something about madness that he doesn't. Instead, it seems to him to serve as an argument for why you can't trust Orient magicians, right? And why modern English magic needs to be divorced from some... Because, I mean, look at this, right? Um, and remember, you know, he goes on... Um, exactly, Philip. It's, a, it's, a, it's like the Orients were ignorant. Um, exactly. Um Look at even when Strange refers here to Norrell's idea. Again, we're not hearing it hearing it in Norrell's voice, right? Norrell isn't isn't lecturing about this this time. Um, but again, Norrell believed it was something to do with the sympathy which fairies feel for madmen, right? So basically, Norrell explains one could even possibly say explains away uh, the Oriot's attitude towards madness um, as merely a symptom of their own obsession with fairies, unhealthy preoccupation with fairies, right? They only listened to madmen and, and paid attention to madmen because the fairies seem to have some kind of sympathy with madmen, which again is not evidence that we should change our attitude towards madness. Rather, it is evidence that fairies are untrustworthy untru- and bad, right? And dangerous, at least, which is Norrell's point of view, right? 
Um, and so, therefore, the fact that the Oriates take it seriously shows not that they might have superior wisdom uh, to us modern people, you know, the, you know, living in the, you know, in the the, the modern up to date nineteenth century. Um, uh, um, a wonderful phrase. It's a quotation from Dracula, uh, by the way. Um, but anyway, uh, so um, it's not. It's that's of course what I mean by modern. Um, but yeah, that sense of Norrell, Norrell does not seem even really to question is there actually something in that? Right? Is there something uh, I, that is maybe they knew what they were um, what they were talking about, right? Maybe the, maybe, no, no, the Oriates must be, must be ignorant. Um, but what, what, what are the things that have changed? What has changed since that time? We see things differently, right? Um, we as readers are placed in the position to see both sides of things, right? Um, we at least, if even if Mr. Norrell isn't willing to, to see it, um, remember we talked about the, the apparent blindness of Jonathan Strange, right? The infuriating denseness of Jonathan when, you know, here's Arabella telling him about this gentleman with the thistle-down hair that he, she's met numerous times and, and been on friendly terms with for for years and yet doesn't know his name and he's promising to bring her the Queen of Naples and a music tree, right? All, those, all that stuff and he's, you know, he just doesn't it's just whatever. She's not even mad. He doesn't even have that excuse, right? She's just a woman, I guess, right? The way that he doesn't really pay attention to the things that his wife tells him. Um, Jonathan Strange is much more um, generous, you know, towards women and uh, women in particular. You know, he's much more open-minded than Mr. Norrell is, and yet he still doesn't listen to his wife, right? Um, and of course, when uh, he when his neighbor attempts to tell him that he saw his wife wandering out in the snow, um, he completely dismisses it, despite the fact that his neighbor tells him that he was hearing bells, and despite the fact that his neighbor saying that he was hearing bells led Jonathan himself to give a lecture about how you often hear bells when fairy magic is happening, and yet he never even pauses to consider maybe fairy magic was happening. Why not? Because he seemed just... Is it possible that the gentleman's magic is at work to suppress him noticing it? I think that's possible. That's even likely to be the case in the case of Arabella's talking about her friend the gentleman. Um, I think it's unlikely to be the case when the neighbor is telling him that he saw Arabella out in the snow. That seems to be simply, I don't accept that as a possibility. I know that that can't be true. Um, therefore... The only, there are really only two possible explanations to this, right? Obviously, Arabella can't have been out wandering in the snow. That's ridiculous. So either, um, either the neighbor is mistaken, or the neighbor's mad, right? One or the other. Um, um, I mean, really, what other possible explanations are there? Oh, well, of course, it's possible that he was telling the truth, and that thing which sounds mad is, in fact, true. 
is in fact the case, um, because that seems to be the consequence of fairy magic. That seems to be one of the things that magic does, is to create a situation which sounds mad <laughs> to other people, right? And that, in fact, resistance to madness is a part of modern blindness, that it's in this sense a symptom or a corollary of the departure of magic from England with the departure of John Ostglass, right? That now that people don't take madmen seriously anymore, now they just dismiss them as crazy. And we know examples, right? Stephen and, uh, and, and Lady Pole are both of them under fairy enchantments, both of them, well, Stephen, because nobody pays any attention to him, you know, if people paid more mind to Stephen, they would probably think him mad too, but he's uh, not only a servant, but a black servant, and as much as Sir Walter Pole respects him, he doesn't really listen to him or talk with him or take him seriously in that way. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, so, Mick, it's true. The fae glamour does prohibit people from seeing the oddness of fairy activity. That That is a thing that we see often happening. They're often merely oblivious to it. They don't even recognize that it's happening when it's right in front of them. But even if they do hear about it, they dismiss it as madness. It's insane. People who talk... So Lady Paul is, is obviously insane, right? I mean, it's d- demonstrated that she's insane. The fact that she came packing heat uh, to, 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 you know, to, to, to put a cap in Mr. Norrell shows that she's obviously... That proves she's crazy, right? Um, she is obviously mad. Um, but, again, of course, the madness is actually fairy magic at work. There is no madness really involved there at all. Um, and it and the same with King George, right? And I, you know, I, I, I was saying it's one of the things that I love about the King George sequence. Most of the things that he says are, in fact, perfectly sensible, right? He's holding what is doubtless, if we could hear both halves of the conversation, which we don't, um, a perfectly sensible conversation that he's having with a gentleman with a thistle-down hair, right? But Jonathan cannot hear or see the gentleman, and so therefore it sounds like mere disconnected ravings on the part of the king. Some of the stuff that King George says, though, is not in conversation with the gentleman and just seems crazy, right? Um... But at least it opens up me, anyway, to wonder, is it crazy? Right? I mean, who are we? Maybe there are things that he is perceiving that we don't perceive. Um, I don't know, right? It would be be interesting. I haven't done it in detail, but it would be interesting to look at all of the things that Mad King George says. Um, To go back and take an Orient magician attitude um, and, uh, and at least open ourselves to the possibility um, that King George is a seer or prophet rather than merely dismissing what he says as simply mad, right? Um, But again, notice what Clark has done by putting us as readers increasingly in the place where we see both sides, right? Where we know what the apparently mad person is saying, we recognize that the person is not crazy because we see both sides. Just as Jonathan cannot see both sides of the converse, cannot see or hear both sides of the conversation that King George is having, increasingly as the book goes on, we do hear both halves of the conversations. And so we can see through as 
perhaps the Orient magicians did too, see through and, and recognize both halves of the story. Um, and uh, um, I think, for instance, another quick example of that, the Moss Oak, right? That is the Moss Oak that looks like Lady Arabella. Um, uh, you know, when when she is uttering those statements about walking through the moors and, and you know, it's that, that really creepy speech that we were looking at about, uh, you know, listening to all her brothers and sisters, the ones that are growing, the ones that have died, the ones that are there, right? All that stuff. Um, that sounds totally bonkers, right? I mean, again, from the point of view of, like, the other people in attendance there in the house, that sounds completely insane. And yet we know, Right? We have insight into we we know the what's really going on, and therefore knowing that this is not in fact Arabella Strange, but a tree, right, a tree stump that's talking, it makes perfect sense, right? There's nothing insane about that statement at all. Exactly, John. Yeah, we who figured out the whole moss oak thing. Thank you for rubbing my nose in that again. But yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, so long as we have sufficient perspicacity uh, to understand what's going on in the moss oak sequence, as I did not my first time reading the book. Um, nevertheless, uh, again, you know, we we it, it sounds completely different to us than it does to other people. This kind of thing. Um, is something that I think we get emphasized uh, uh, a lot in this section, which is, of course, very explicitly about madness. Um, listen to... Uh, here's, uh, here's, here's Byron again. Um, this is Byron's assessment of what's going on here, right? Nonsense, declared Byron. The causes of his madness, that is strange as of course, are purely metaphysical. They lie in the vast chasm between that which one is and that which one desires to become, between the soul and the flesh. Forgive me, Dr. Greysteel, but this is a matter of which I have experience. Of this I can speak with authority. But, Dr. Greysteel frowned and paused to collect his thoughts, but the period of intense frustration appeared to be over. His work was going well. All I can tell you is this. Before this peculiar obsession with his dead wife, he was full of quite another matter, John Usglas. You must have observed that. Now I know very little of English magicians. They have always seemed to me a parcel of dull, dusty old men, except for John Usglas. Of course Byron likes John Usglas. He is quite another matter. The magician who tamed the other landers, the only magician to defeat death, the magician whom Lucifer himself was forced to treat as an equal. Now, whenever Strange compares himself to this sublime being, as he must from time to time, he sees himself for what he truly is, a plodding, earth-bound mediocrity. All his achievements, so praised up in the desolate little isle, crumble to dust before him. That will bring on as fine a bout of despair as you could wish to see. This is to be mortal, and seek the things beyond mortality." Lord Byron paused for a moment, as if committing the last remark to memory, in case he should want to put it in a poem. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Nancy thinks that uh, Byron is uh, projecting a little bit here. Uh, yes, yes. Um, um, uh, yes. At least he is certainly understanding him in his own terms, right? But of course we should be careful to dismiss Lord Byron, um, as, of course, we know the truth of some of what he says, 
right? Um, whenever Strange compares himself to this sublime being, he sees himself for what he truly is, a plodding, earthbound mediocrity. We've heard him say almost the same thing. Remember, he comes from the King's Roads and says almost exactly that, that everything that he and Norrell has done is as nothing, right? Uh, you know, he, he, his, he is primarily... He emerges from the King's Road, for the King's Roads, with a sense of his own, not inadequacy, but, you know, sort of tininess here, right? Um, um, so, so yeah, Byron's right about that. Um, does that lead to despair? No, it does not lead Strange to despair, right? Um, uh, you know, is he, uh, you know, is he having this sort of romantic, uh, moment? You know, is that what's bothering Strange? No, um, no, not really. Um, but, um, but, you know, I think that one of the things that we see here, one of the things that, um, although, again, I don't think that Byron is completely wrong, um, but again, notice how we can be in a position, you know, we are now in a position to be like, mm, Byron, you're close in some things, but not us. You know, we're, we're the authorities on everything now, right? Um, we know this, the hidden secrets of all things. We are the ones who are, like, the real magicians now. Remember the whole business at the beginning, from the very beginning of the book, about becoming a learned magician, right? Studying the history of magic, understanding, you know, how these things really work, having the sort of book learning uh, of magic. Well, we've gained a lot of book learning of magic, right? From the course of uh, from the course of reading this book. Um, and now... So yeah, we can sit here and um, grade Byron's performance, see the ways in which it's like and the ways in which it's unlike... Uh, Jonathan Strange's true uh, true condition, um, and anyway, and but again, we see that Byron, like the gentleman with the thistle down hair, in his interpretation of Inculus's prophecy, is sublimely confident in his own interpretation. Right, he's the one who sees because he, Byron, has this deep insight into these metaphysical matters. Right, he remember I mean, I of this I can speak with authority. The gentleman was speaking with authority, too, right? But their authority is nothing uh, uh, compared to ours, right? Yeah, as uh, Sarah Lagarde says, we get a full mag- magical education uh, from the footnotes. Um, exactly, right? I mean, we could basically set up our own our own academies for training magicians at this point. Well, uh, I mean, if uh, Childermas would let us. Um, but uh, anyway, okay, so... Um, uh, Back to uh, back to strange. Um, yeah, no, I agree. We should do a breakdown of how the footnotes change as the story goes on. We absolutely should. That would be fascinating. If anybody has any observations to offer on that, on any changes, sort of changes in the pattern of the footnotes and tone of the footnotes, I'd love to 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 study that more clearly. Um, but I'll, but I'm going to need help with observations. So anything you notice about that, again, email that to me. We can look at it. In the in our bonus class session, um, but anyway, so back to Strange's perception. Strange's perspective on madness is changing. We were looking at the moment where he's thinking about the madness of the crazy, uh, you know, the crazy cat lady um, in Venice, and is uh, uh, thinking, you know, is now open to the uh, the possibility of the utility of magic here, of uh, madness rather. Um, this. Um, um, this from uh, one of his letters. Um, 
Now at times I become a little wild. I shake and laugh and weep for a time. I cannot say what time, perhaps an hour, perhaps a day, but enough of that. Madness is the key. I believe I am the first English magician to understand that. <laughs> well, oriots, but whatever. Norrell was right. He said we do not need fairies to help us. He said that madmen and fairies have much in common, but I did not understand the implications then, and neither did he. Henry, you cannot conceive of how desperately I need you here. Why do you not come? Are you ill? I have received no replies to my letters, but this may mean that you were already on the road to Venice, and this letter may perhaps never reach you. Um... Yeah, Nancy Fosberg says, these letters are very painful to read. We can see Henry's perspective very well. We absolutely can. Absolutely. Um, maybe he is the first English magician, in a sense, perhaps. Um, we know that none of the Oriots had ever exerted themselves to use magic to cure madness. Um, we don't seem to have any evidence that any of them had exerted magic to create madness in themselves either. Um, so maybe he is the first one fully to understand this. Um, to uh, his, If he does have an insight which does seem to be sort of unique to himself, something that he's not does not have in common with the Oriates, it would be that, you know, that that that, that Noro is right, right? That we don't need fairies to help us. That we can do what fairies do. Um, that we can meet fairies on their own terms. That we can cross over into that world, not just traveling in fairy. Many magicians have done that. Um, but that we can have access to that in 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 this sort of direct kind of way through madness itself. Um, and Nancy, exactly as you say, and yet you read this and at the very least we can appreciate how crazy does he sound, right? Obviously, poor Jonathan Strange has gone mad. Yeah, of course he has, right? Um... Notice how that word begins to even lose its its meaning. Uh, uh, John, you were just complaining that I called uh, uh, the cat lady the crazy cat lady of Venice, and he, and he said, "You know, crazy? She's the queen of cats." Yeah, of course she is, um, and crazy. I don't mean that as an insult, right? And that's the thing that I think comes across. You know, it's the question of, wait, are they really mad or not? ceases to even have a meaning anymore, right? Is it mad to perceive what's really going on? Or is it just having a different perception? Or wait, is that what madness is in the first place, right? So, I mean, uh, d d does the question, is she mad or is it true, right? Is that, in fact, a false question at all? Um so yeah, so and this when 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 you know Jonathan Strange is mad, um, you know the, the, all this discussion about the madness of the of the uh, of the English magician there in Venice, um, the point becomes not 
Oh, no, no, no. Like, what's, if you're defending Jonathan, right? Be like, no, 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 it's not like that. He hasn't just lost his reason. He knows just what he's doing. He's making himself insane on purpose, right? Yes, of course, he is, yes. He's, that's uh, mad. And not only is that, by definition, making yourself insane, um, not only do you have to be in, you, you have to be insane to do that, right? Um, I mean, it's like this whole circular thing about his madness. Um, what it sort of forces us, again, is just to reconsider what on earth that even means um, in the first place. Um, look at um, another example. I've been somewhat troubled in my conscience. So this actually, this letter is a little bit earlier than that last one. Um, I've been somewhat troubled in my conscience since I wrote to you last. You know that I have never lied to you, but I confess that I have not told you enough for you to form an accurate opinion of how matters stand with Arabella at present. She is not dead, but twelve lines crossed out, under the earth, within the hill which they call the Bru. Alive, yet not alive. Not dead either. Enchanted. It has been their habit since time immemorial to steal away Christian men and women and make servants of them, or force them, as in this case, to take part in their dreary pastimes, their dances, their feasts, their long, empty celebrations of dust and nothingness. Among all the reproaches which I heap on my own head, the bitterest by far is that I have betrayed her, she whom my first duty was to protect. Um... Again, see how this illustrates that principle. Again, uh, and, and again, I, um, Nancy, you're absolutely right to point out the way in which Clark gives us these letters directly. Right, she doesn't just depict Jonathan writing them, or 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 what you know. We, the fact that we just get transcripts of these letters um, puts us, as we read them, in the position of Henry. And so, when we do kind of put ourselves into Henry's point of view goodness how these sound, right? How horrifying, how sad, how alarming these things sound in this letter, right? Um, She is not dead but 12 lines cross out after she is not dead but, right? And then it picks up with, she's not dead but under the earth? (laughs) Okay. Uh, uh, Again, I I, am... um, I'm reminded of Dracula. Again, I, I can't help it. Um, when Van Helsing is trying to explain to Arthur Holmwood that Lucy, his fiance, is a vampire, you know, he says, uh, um, he asks if he, you know, if, if, if he's considered the possibility that she might not be truly dead. And Arthur is like, what? Has she been buried alive? And, uh, and Van Helsing just says, no, I, I, I did not say that she was alive. Oh, I did not think it. Right? I, I suggest only that she might be undead. And, and he's like, undead? Not alive? What, you know, what are you talking... He has no way of even understanding this. Uh, he thinks Van Helsing is mad, and it's interesting in that book, people are often suspecting people of being insane. Um... Uh, for again, for these same for these for these same reasons, but we know, right? We are having this experience, um, and again, similar actually to Dracula. We as readers are having because because we know more, right? Finally, somebody gets it. Finally, Jonathan has put it together. 
Finally, yes, their dances, their feasts, their long, empty celebrations of dust and nothingness. This is why Lady Pole has been suffering for years, and she couldn't even tell anybody, and nobody else had any idea of what she was suffering and why, other than Stephen Black, who was suffering it with her. Right. Um... Uh, yeah, exactly, Rachel. It's like how uh, Stephen and Lady Pole speak of something completely different every time they try to tell someone about fairy. Nobody else even can hear what they're saying, right? Um, and instead, what they're told is something disjointed, something mad. Though we have every reason to believe that the things that they tell are perfectly true, right? Um, what we're hearing is sort of like the fairy side of things, Um uh, including that time, remember, when Stephen Black lists out, uh, he starts reciting a list of every Christian who has been uh, uh, who has been abducted by fairies, you know, in the last, like, 400 years. Um, uh, so, yeah, he's just sort of t- reveal, they're, they're, they're revealing all these things. They're, they're true, right? All these things that they're saying are perfectly true, and yet it's, 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 it's disjointed. It's, it's insane. Here's Jonathan spelling it out. He sees it clearly, and yet again, it sounds completely insane to Henry, who sees this as merely evidence that Jonathan has lost his mind. Wait, except Jonathan has <clears throat> lost his mind. Um, and a couple of you are pointing out the sort of the, the the manifestations, the repeated manifestations of Jonathan Strange's madness. The candles inside people's skulls, I find fascinating too. Is that? Uh, y- is he mad or is he a seer? Right. Well, you know, there's actually kind of a, uh, kind of something to that. Actually, you know, um, at least sort of metaphorically, in a sense, this is a prophecy. With the pineapples, I'm not sure. Ooh, maybe one of you can help me. Um, especially those of you who have ebooks handy. Um, the second time through the book, I noticed, but I noticed it fleetingly, and I foolishly didn't write it down. There's a reference to pineapples in like the first half of the book, and uh, I get when I read past it this second time through, I was like, "Ooh, a pineapple!" But again, I can't remember it now. So, somebody do a search for me. Tell me where pineapples are mentioned prior to Jonathan's incident with uh, his first mad delusions about pineapples. Um, I know there's a reference earlier on, and I can't remember what it is. Um, so, 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 somebody look. If you have got a searchable text, look up the word pineapple and tell me. Uh, tell me where it is. Okay, all right. Thank you, John. I I I, th- I thought you had an e text. Hang on, I'm gonna look it up right now. Page one ninety seven. He says, "Let's see if we can find the." Hmm. Is it one of the things that Mrs. Brandy stocks in her shop? Oh, the alehouse called the pineapple. That was it, John. That's totally the one that I was remembering. Yes, the alehouse called the pineapple that Childermas takes Vinculus to uh, when he meets up with him. Yes, 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 yes. That was absolutely it. And I was like, oh, the pineapple. Um, yep, yep, yep. Okay. Phew. Ah, ah okay. I remembered now. I am not sure what to make of that, but that is so not a coincidence. Remember the description of the... Uh, of the um, of the pineapple and the rather peculiar nature of the pineapple and how it uh, the, the 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 description of that of that alehouse is uh, is really um, is 
is really interesting. But anyway, I don't want to get too distracted on this, but um, uh, but so so let's uh, let's. But, but I, I wanted to mention that I'd, I'd be happy to come back and talk about it. Uh, you guys should think about that more. I think it's really cool. But again, that was the one element. The pineapple thing is the one thing that seems like sort of unredeemably insane, right? The thing which just seems totally disjointed, dis, dis, disjointed, irrational, arbitrary. Um, but um, uh, yeah, okay, John, right. John Moline says that um, when Mrs. Brandy is making small talk with Stephen about Africa, they talk about pineapples. Yeah, I, I, okay, right, exactly, exactly, okay. Um, pineapples from Africa. Pineapples from Africa, Stephen Black, the alehouse that Vinculus went to. Um, okay, yeah, no, there's, there's, I, there's, there's definitely stuff we could do there. I'd, I'd have to think it through more, um, but there's definitely a pattern there. But you notice where this comes from. You notice why I'm coming back to this and wanting us to try to make these connections because I, I'm trying to be like an Orient magician, right? I don't, I. Uh, believe I'm not ready to throw out anything that Jonathan sees or experiences when he is in his mad state, right? Um, he's mad and he's talking about candles in people's heads and he's talking about pineapples and I am unwilling to believe, to mirror, I'm, I, I, I don't want to go all Mr. Norrell on his visions about pineapples, right? There might, there's something to that. There's probably something to that, right? If not, I just don't understand. But, um, Probably. Anyway, um, we get lots of examples of this sort of not understanding. One of my favorite moments is um, when uh, the gentleman and Stephen visit uh, that time when they visit Strange and Byron is there watching him, right, really creepily. Suddenly Strange raised his head and cried out, I know you are there. You can hide from me if you wish, but it is too late. I know you are there. Who are you talking to? Byron asked him. Strange frowned. I am being watched, spied upon. Are you indeed? And do you know by whom? By a fairy and a butler. A butler, eh? said his lordship, laughing. Well, one may say what one likes about imps and goblins, but butlers are the worst of them. What? said Strange. Again, how much worse does this sound than the things that King George said? Right? I mean, like somebody looking around an apparently empty room and saying, I know you're there! I know you're there! And you ask who it is, and he's like, a fairy and a butler are spying on me! Right? I mean, how completely insane does that, uh, does that sound? Right? Um, and yet, we know it's exactly the case. In fact, not only do we know that it's precisely true? The fact that we've been seeing the fairy and the butler spying on Jonathan Strange for hundreds and hundreds of pages, ever since that time when uh, when uh, uh, Stephen Black was walking back from um, from Mrs. Brandy's shop and um, ended up you know, went down into what he thought was the, you know, the lower entry into Sir Walter Pohl's house, and instead found himself in Strange's sitting room, um, with the gentleman, you know, looking at him. Um, that was the first time he ever saw Jonathan Strange, soon after Strange arrived in London. Um, 
So the, the fairy and the butler have been spying on him continuously. The difference is that... So has Strange cracked? Has Strange lost it? No, he's gained it, right? He's gained it. Now he's... We, we see... Cause it's To me, it's kind of a shock, right? Just like... Um, well, okay, it's not just like because we're not as shocked as the as the gentleman was, but um, but the first time when Strange looks up and can see the gentleman, right, and the gentleman is walking over to pull his hair again um, to torment him as he's been doing, and he's shocked when Jonathan can see him, right? There's that same kind, though not the same degree of shock, when we're we're, we're used to watching the gentleman and Stephen watch Jonathan, and then all of a sudden to see that Jonathan also knows, like we do, what's really going on. It's kind of a shock to us here, because we've never seen him pick up on it before. Um, But, um, anyway, so, um, uh, it's... it's, uh, But, again it sounds like he's gone completely mad. Because, wait, he has gone completely mad. It's We can't actually look at this conversation and say, ah, if only Byron knew, right? It sounds insane to Byron, but really, it's not insane. No, it is insane. If, it, if he weren't insane, he wouldn't have perceived it at all, right? That's where this perception comes from, in fact. It just has to change our entire definition. Um... And uh, we see another, uh, even more important example of this in his conversation with Drawlight, uh, when he captures Drawlight. There was a silence. Drawlight wondered how much Strange had understood. Then Strange said, Emma Wintertown is not mad. She appears mad. That is, but that is Norrell's fault. He summoned a fairy to raise her from the dead, and in exchange he gave the fairy all sorts of rights over her. The same fairy threatened the liberty of the King of England, and has enchanted at least two more of His Majesty's subjects, one of them my wife. He paused. Your first task, Lucrocrita, is to tell John Childermas what I have just told you, and to deliver this to him. And he gives her he gives him Lady Pole's finger. Um Yeah uh John exactly. Strange now has the full picture of the situation, right? But again, notice the shift. Notice the gap that has widened now, right? This is one of the craziest speeches that he has uttered, right? I mean, again, the same fairy threatened the liberty of the King of England. Okay, right? Um, And you're being spied on by a fairy and a butler. Or is it a fairy butler? Or, you know, what... um, it sounds completely crazy, and you know he's also enchanted my dead wife, right? Um, and that only not only seems to betray the the madness of his speech, but to give an explanation for the madness of his speech, like, okay, Mister Grieving in Denial Widower, right? Uh, uh, yes, okay, he's enchanted your dead wife. Um, um, anyway. But, of course, to us, who have been watching this happen, who have been, uh, you know, if we have any humanity, um, sympathizing with lady po- with poor Lady Pole, who has been uh, the victim of this whole horrible thing uh, all the way along, to finally see, knowing how Stephen and Lady Pole have been longing for somebody, you know, the, the, the despair that they have felt, that anyone, that they would ever be able to make anyone understand that anyone would see 
their real situation. And to hear Jonathan Strange just rattle all of this off, this is the most clear, sane... uh, This is a relief to hear him actually lay all this stuff out, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, But again, why does it sound... So, okay, so this is a really crazy speech, but it sounds refreshingly clear, sensible, and direct to us. What does that say about us? <laughs> right? But that's the that's the interesting thing, right? That's the interesting thing about our own position as the book changes. Maybe we are like the Oriates and listening to the Mad Men as Seers, or maybe not, <laughs> right? Uh, maybe it's not that we have... Uh, we're listening to Mad Men with, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 the sort of the, the, the disinterested objectivity of, uh, uh, of, of a scientist, but rather because we ourselves are mad as well, like Jonathan Strange. Again, this is what it is to be mad. Um... I love the way that we, our own perceptions, are kind of brought into this as well. Um, associated with these kinds of understandings are, um, that is this sort of insight into what's really going on, is then the insight that Jonathan Strange voices in this same conversation. Strange seemed to consider this for a moment. That is, who are the magicians in England, right? He's, he's, he's told... Drawlight uh, uh, or Lou Crocoda, uh, to go back to England and convey this message to all the other magicians there. And he's like, is this a trick question, right? There's only one, right? You want me to go tell this to Mr. Norrell? Um, and, uh, and no, so Strange is, is trying to answer the question of what other magicians in England. Strange seemed to consider this for a moment. My pupils, he said. My pupils are magicians. All the men and women who ever wanted to be Norrell's pupils are magicians. Childermas is another. Segundus another. Honeyfoot. The subscribers to the magical journals. The members of the old societies. England is full of magicians. Hundreds. Thousands, perhaps. Norrell refuses them. Norrell denied them. Norrell silenced them. But they are magicians nonetheless. Tell them this. He passed his hand across his forehead and breathed hard for a moment. Tree speaks to stone. Stone speaks to water. It is not so hard as we have supposed. Tell them to read what is written in the sky. Tell them to ask the rain. All of John Usklas's old alliances are still in place. I am sending messengers to remind the stones and the sky and the rain of their ancient promises. Tell them... But again, Strange could not find the words he wanted. He drew something in the air with a gesture. I cannot explain it, he said. Lucrocida... Do you understand? Um, What's to understand? How can anyone understand that gibberish, right? Except we've seen it too, right? Um, Tree speaks to stone, stone speaks to water. Wait, I don't understand. What's, what does that mean? Tell them to read what is written in the sky. Oh, oh, wait a second. We have seen writing in the sky. Childermas, anyway, saw writing in the sky. Tell them to ask the rain. Oh, oh wait. We have seen the rain writing things on the earth uh, with its water, 
right? So, wait a second, that doesn't, maybe we do understand, right? Um, yeah, and John Moline points out that Draw Light just saw writing in the sky. Draw Light, of all people, Draw Light saw writing in the sky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It can be seen. People haven't seen it. People haven't been seeing it, right? John Usglas's old alliances are still in place. Norrell disapproves of John Usglas and wants everybody to forget him. Why? Remember, because he took the magic with him. He abandoned England and took a magic away. And so we have to rebuild it after Mr. Norrell's model, right? Forgetting John Usglas as much as we can, but Norrell's wrong, right? At least that is the insight that Strange has here. John Usglas did not cancel his old alliances. The power of English magic is still in place. That's the insight that he has. Now he 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 sees England, he sees English magic in an entirely new way, thanks to his madness. And this, by the way, is, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, the only thing in this entire speech, this entire conversation with Drawlight, where he says something that we don't already understand, right? Where he reveals something which is sort of new to us, though we've had plenty of reasons ourselves to suspect it. And when he says it here, again, we... It doesn't strike us as wholly alien and new. We, rather, can look back and say, right, yes, I remember, I remember. Um, now I can understand these scraps and things that we've seen. Um, good, Rachel Draper is exactly right. Ask the rain. This is exactly how. Those are the precise words that the gentleman uses to describe how his own magic works, right? He's, these English magicians, remember when he's insulting them and saying that watching an English magician doing magic is like watching somebody trying to eat with his coat on backwards and a bucket over his head? Remember that, 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 that passage? As Rachel recalls, he says he just speaks to the rain, right? He just asks the rain, and the rain is happy to, 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 to do the thing because... Of his old alliance, because he has ancient, he has uh, alliances with these ancient spirits, right? Jonathan recognizes English people have those alliances too. John Osglas established alliances between the English people and the sky and the rain and the trees and the stones, and those old alliances are still in force. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Strange seems to be correct in saying that fairy spirits are not necessary, that English magicians have access to fairy magic, to can do magic like fairies do, without needing fairies to substitute. So Norrell's impulse was correct. Remember when he turned down the gentleman, right? No, 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 I'm not going to have you taking credit for everything, right? I'm not going to... He's not going to subordinate his own magic to the gentleman's magic. He was kind of, you know, sort of wrong-headed uh, about all that, but but he was also right. That's not how you... You don't need to do magic that way. That Strange uh, still was all about that model. Right? Oh, I just need to conjure up a fairy servant, um, and then I'll be as awesome as the Oriates. No. So, by the way, who's the one person who gets it? 
who's the one person who understands, the one person whose faith in Jonathan Strange is undiminished by his insanity. Um, everyone is looking at Jonathan Strange's madness and saying, see, there you go. Um, uh, there you go. It's, uh, this just shows, like, you got to be careful with magic, right? Okay, that's not the person I was thinking of. You're right. Miss Graysteel, Flora does, in fact, retain her faith in Jonathan Strange. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Neural to a certain extent. Uh, yeah, Vinculus. Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of. No, but there's somebody else. Somebody else none of you have mentioned. Dr. Graysteel, no, no. Got it, Noam! Got it, Noam! Lord Wellington! The Duke of Wellington! Absolutely. Uh, this is when the, 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 the government come to him, right? Expressing their strange that the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Hexenmeister of the Great Wellington, as the Austrian soldier calls him. I love the Austrian soldiers. Uh, if, uh, the Hexenmeister. Tell the Hexenmeister of the Great Wellington. Um, anyway, um, the Duke was not impressed. None of this proves anything. I assure you, he did much more eccentric things in the peninsula. I love that sentence. They're saying, like, but, 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 did you realize all these things that he's done? Um, but if he is indeed mad, then he has some reason for being so. If you will take my advice, gentlemen, you will not worry about it. There was a short silence while the ministers puzzled this out. You mean to say he might have become mad deliberately, said one in an incredulous tone? Nothing is more likely, said the duke. But why? asked another. I have not the least idea. In the peninsula we learnt not to question him. Sooner or later it would become clear that all his incomprehensible and startling actions were part of his magic. Keep him to his task, but show no surprise at anything he does. That, my lords, is the way to manage a magician. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I absolutely love this scene. The Duke of Wellington, I just love the Duke of Wellington. I, I love the Duke of Wellington as much as I love Lord Byron uh, in this book. But anyway, um, though again, with Byron, it's, it's you know, since that kind of hits me uh, closer to home professionally, uh, I have a sort of a special delight in the, 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 her treatment of Byron. But, 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 but Philip, doesn't he? As Philip Lord just said, the Duke hits the nail on the head. He totally hits the nail on the head. He's the only one. No one else even suspects. Not even Norrell is suspecting that Jonathan Strange made himself mad deliberately, right? But here's the Duke of Wellington saying nothing is more likely, right? Why? Why is it that the Duke of Wellington and the Duke of Wellington alone gets it, right? Flora, at least, is on the scene, right? Flora retains a personal faith in Jonathan, in Jonathan Strange, right? Wellington, not being anywhere... Near, I mean, he's showing a personal faith in Strange as well, too, of course, but, um, but he's... Uh, he has this sort of abstract understanding of it, right? And he gets it. Nobody else even... I mean, the idea that he made himself insane deliberately never even crosses anyone's mind, not even Norrell's. But the Duke gets it, right? Nothing is more likely, he says. Um, Why? What is it about Wellington that makes him open to this idea that nobody else considers. Remember, he wasn't... Um, 
Uh, as Brian Dimmick says, he, he he isn't even interested in magic and doesn't know that much about it. Exactly. Remember, he was the one who was, I, I used the word unromantic uh, before in saying that how, how sort of unimaginative he was about magic. Remember in his very first conversation with Strange when he was refusing Strange's assistance, um, he was, his idea of what magic could do and how magic could help, you know, the cause of his army um, were so limited that he was like, can you make our bullets fly faster, right? Um, you know, can you build our, you know, fortifications for us? That's all he could think of, right? And Strange was like, no, but... And then that's all he needed to hear, right? Um, his... What the what the Duke of Wellington is, is impartial, right? Um, yeah, he... Uh, yeah, <laughs> Philip Menzies says, that's the way of a good commander. As long as he gets results, that's all that matters. Uh, remember, the Duke of Wellington approves of things being done, uh, being done quickly uh, and in a business-like fashion, right? Um... Uh, yeah, he's as Sarah Lagarde says, he's used to facing the exigencies, the exigencies of the situation, um, uh, unusual though they may be. Yes, yes, good. Um, uh, and Philip Lord says he doesn't waste time thinking about why. Right, exactly. All what he all he cares about is results. He doesn't care about how things happen. Right, he just cares about the results, and he believes, you know, in a sense, you could say that the faith that he shows in Strange is almost the opposite of the faith that Flora Graysteel shows in Strange, right? Her faith is in Jonathan Strange, the man, I would say. Wellington's faith is in Merlin, right? Is in the magician um, who got results, who never failed to get results. Um, No matter how eccentric might have seemed his procedures... Um, but nevertheless, he uh, uh, he he uh, he always got things done, and he approves of people who get things done, um, and so he sees no reason to believe that Jonathan Strange is not just getting things done in in a in a different way. Um, I just sorry, I just I laugh every time I look at the word eccentric. Uh, his his use of the word, you know, with all this, you know, madness and and you know, the, for him to meet, to to sort of dismiss um all of the admittedly insane things that Strange is doing as mere eccentricity uh just just really sort of makes me makes me laugh. Um but uh, anyway, so this is I so I really find this sort of wonderful. In part, it's because of Wellington's separation from... Because he doesn't know... You know, Brian, as you were saying, because he doesn't know or particularly care much about magic. Um, in a sense, that sort of insulates him, right? He's like, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know how it works. I don't really actually care how it works. I just want to... You know, I just... Uh, you know, I, I, I believe in results. He gets results. Um, this is probably getting some results. I mean, And in a sense, um, you know, we see strange sort of showing a kind of, you know, Wellingtonian efficiency and, 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 and kind of daring in his own strategy uh, here, you know, the, and sort of the, uh, the, the campaign against the gentleman. You know, we've now replaced Napoleon with the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, right? And, uh, and this is part of, part of Strange's campaign uh, in his uh, sort of assault on Ferry to rescue his wife now.
Um, anyway, I just I, lo- I absolutely love this scene with Wellington, but uh, but the the way I mean, even at the very least, the way that it really foregrounds this question of 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 perceptions and what do you categorize as insane and um, uh, notice the just the apparent contradiction of terms, right? Um, I mean the 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 statement that 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 third sentence in his first quotation there, but if he is indeed mad then he has some reason for being so. That statement seems nonsensical, right? The whole definition. Because he doesn't say, if he appears mad, he has some reason for being so. No, no, no. If he is indeed mad, he has some reason for being so. If he, is in, if he has indeed lost his reason, then he has a reason for that, right? It's like a contradiction in terms. And yet, Wellington is, Wellington is fine with that, Right? But that's exactly in in doing in, in in being fine with that. Wellington comes closer to understanding from this completely external perspective the true nature of madness in this story, closer than anybody ever, anyone else ever does in the book. And that I think is really kind of awesome. Um, anyway, okay, um, we're almost out of time. But that's okay. Um, let's uh, let's look at one more thing before we go. Two more passages. One more little uh, theme that is kind of applying this principle in a sense. This thinking about madness and our own perspective and uh, sort of how much we can see and seeing to the reality of things. Coming back to the fairy, th- you know, coming back at the end of class here to where we started with the fairy's confident proclamation about the, you know what that. Uh, you know, apparent prophecy of the Raven King really was talking about, right? Um, when we hear, increasingly, when we hear the gentleman with the thistle-down hair speaking, it sounds different to us as we move along. And here, John, I'm thinking about what you were pointing out earlier in class about the 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 trajectory of the of the gentleman, right? And I would say that's one way of looking at it. It's true that the gentleman's status is sort of in decline. But the other way of looking at that is that our own knowledge, our own insight, is rising, right? As we ourselves cross deeper and deeper into the realm of madness uh, and begin to understand and see all of these things. Um, Anyway, so this is right after Stephen... um, This is right after the gentleman has has just returned from when Strange uh, demanded that he give him the thing that the last magician that he got from the last English magician that he uh, was why did Strange ask that? Well Strange asked that because he was hoping, you know, he was trying to get information from the fairy, right? So if one of the Orient magicians gave the fairy something that he would then give, so basically this is Stephen's way of getting a hand-me-down direct from the Orients right? Um, he would get, maybe it was a book, you know, hopefully it's a book, right? Um, but uh, but that, that seems to be, as far as we can see, what was in Strange's mind. We certainly know he knew nothing about Lady Pole. He wasn't angling for the finger, right? He had no idea what it was when he got it, right? We know, and yet, here's, um, uh, oh, so did I say Stephen? I meant, I meant Jonathan Strange, of course. Sorry. Thanks, John. Um, uh, but anyway, okay, so this is when the gentleman then shows up to Stephen and is, is you know, really upset and and 
saying disjointed things which Stephen can't understand, right? From this rather incomplete explanation, Stephen deduced that the magician must have succeeded in summoning and speaking to the gentleman with the thistle-down hair. But surely, sir, he said, there was a time when you wished to aid the magicians and do magic with them and gain their gratitude. Oh, I'm sorry. Look, I was here. I was wrong about the context. This isn't after he asked for the finger. This is before that. This is just after he saw him for the first time. Okay. Okay. Um... There was a time when you wished to aid the magicians and do magic with them and gain their gratitude. That is how you came to rescue Lady Pole, was it not? Perhaps you will find you like it better than you think. I love the word rescue, right? You came to rescue Lady Pole. Oh, perhaps, but I really do not think so. I tell you, Stephen, apart from the inconvenience of having him summon me whenever he chooses, it was the dreariest half-hour I have spent in many a long age. I have never heard anyone talk so much. He is quite the most conceited person I have ever met. People like that, who must be continually talking the, uh, talking themselves, and have no time to listen to anyone else, are quite disgusting to me. <laughs> Love that sentence. Oh, indeed, sir. It is most vexatious. Stephen Black's wit is awesome. But isn't it interesting, like, for whose benefit is Stephen Black making all of these equivocal statements, right? It's almost like the fairy, the butler anyway, recognizes that somebody's spying on him, right? Um we're spying on him. The gentleman can't see us and doesn't know that we're there, but it's almost like Stephen does. Anyway, um, uh, it is most vexatious, and I dare say that since you, will be, uh, since you will be busy with the magician, we will have to put off making me king of England, right? Um, but again, so the, 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 uh, the, the point that I wanted to make here is that, we see, again, we see the gentleman in decline, right? Look at how much, look at how oblivious he is. Far from being one who sees everything, we see how blind he is, certainly to himself, right, and his own situation. Um, how much better Stephen Black himself understands everything uh, that's going on. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, Stephen Black finally says his very brave thing. Right. For the first time after he's been playing along with the gentleman for years and years and years. And then he, in this moment of crisis, he speaks up. This is when Strange, of course, is there in the court. There are people in this world, he began, whose lives are nothing but a burden to them. A black veil stands between them and the world. They are utterly alone. They are like shadows in the night shut off from joy and love and all gentle human emotions, unable even to give comfort to each other. Their days are full of nothing but darkness, misery, and solitude. You know whom I mean, sir. I I do not speak of blame, the gentleman was gazing at him with fierce intensity. But I am sure we can turn the magician's wrath away from you if you will only release... Ah! exclaimed the gentleman, and his eyes widened with understanding. He held up his hand as a sign for Stephen to be silent. Stephen was certain he had gone too far. Forgive me, he whispered. Forgive? said the gentleman in a tone of surprise. Why, there is nothing to forgive. It is long centuries since anyone spoke to me with such forthrightness, and I honor you for it. Darkness, yes, darkness, misery, and solitude. He turned upon his heel and walked away into the crowd. how many levels on which we can read this, right? How many different points of view 
in which we can understand this. Um, we can hear what Stephen is saying. We can hear a sort of a second level on which Stephen is speaking the truth. Um, we can see the way in which the gentleman is misunderstanding what Stephen is saying. Um, it's It makes the head spin, right? What's Stephen saying? What is he trying to communicate to the gentleman with the thistle-down hair? Right. That's a short synopsis, John. I agree. Release Lady Paul. Right? That's what he's saying. Um, there are people in this world whose lives are nothing but a burden to them. He has decided to roll the dice and try to tell the gentleman the truth at last. It's not about rescuing Lady Paul. Right? You are holding her in miserable bondage. There are people in this world, here in Ferry, where we currently are, whose lives are nothing but a burden to them. My life is a burden to her. Lady Paul's life is a burden to her. My life is a burden to me. Right? I hate it here. Lady Paul hates it here. They are like shadows in the night, shut off from joy and love and all gentle human emotions, because they're in Ferry, right? Forced to dance and do these processions and... And, and that cut off from all humanity, from all human contact. So that now Lady Paul, since she still has to spend half of her time in the world, has been actually locked away from human society, right? As a kind of, you know, a sort of logical completion, right? Of the things. Um, uh, unable even to give comfort to each other. Their days are, as we've seen when Stephen and Lady Paul talk, their days are full of nothing but darkness, misery, and solitude. You know whom I mean, sir. Lady Paul, right? I do not speak of blame. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you're bad to do this, but I am sure we can turn the magician's wrath away from you if you will only release. Um, that seems to be what he's actually meaning to say. But of course, we can hear much more in this, right? Um, John Moline says, "I was thinking of the black shrouded guest." Yeah, we do see somebody. John, John Jonathan Strange has seen somebody in the fairy court, right? Who looks like this, right? Uh, a black veil standing between them and the world, right? Uh, a black veil, also. There are those whose lives are worth are nothing but a burden to them. A black veil stands between them and the world. They are utterly alone. Huh. Who, 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 who's like that? Have a black veil between them and the world? Who are utterly alone? Um, Mine means that any man may strike me in a public place and never fear the consequences. It means that my friends do not always like to be seen with me in the street. It means that no matter how many books I read or languages I master, I will never be anything but a curiosity, like a talking pig or a mathematical horse. Right? Exactly, Sarah. He's speaking of himself, right? His black skin is also like that black veil, which 
cuts him off from all what was the phrase all gentle human emotions right unable even to give comfort to each other um yeah and yet he is philip as you point out he is using this speech to ask for mercy for jonathan well primarily mercy for lady paul right and for arabella um but uh, he is asking for mercy right um mercy for himself as well he notice how he's carefully speaking in the third person here right they are utter, utterly alone they are like shadows in the night he's not saying we he's not speaking in the first person it's distant from himself and yet very personal to himself and describes ironically his life in england as well as his life here um he is cut off from everybody in england too he doesn't belong anywhere just like john osglas right the nameless slave he doesn't belong in england he doesn't belong in africa um he doesn't belong here and his life is nothing but a burden to him um fortunately for him perhaps not the greatest glory and the greatest burden oh wait maybe glory and burden are joined together sometimes i guess that does kind of happen doesn't it um what does the gentleman hear when he hears this uh speech right um how does he release this uh, yeah exactly as john was saying how does he release how does he finish the sentence that he cuts off right um if you will only release release what the darkness right darkness yes darkness misery and solitude that's it brilliant right um yeah 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 no it's not really it's <laughs> it, uh yeah yeah both john and philip lord are suggesting release the kraken is the uh so and i don't think that's actually where that sentence was going um but yes sarah lagarde says for the gentleman it's always about himself exactly exactly um yeah exactly karita darkness misery and solitude make more of it problem solved yes exactly that's what you you should deploy darkness misery and solitude absolutely um as brian dimick says he just hears another way to triumph over his enemies um so much so that he not only fails even to comprehend this sort of appeal to compassion which stephen black is making he doesn't even recognize stephen's afraid he's gone too far right that he's going to recognize that he has been critical that stephen has been critical critical of the gentleman right um he doesn't even perceive it he's so oblivious to that um he just can't understand he can't see it but we can see it right um all right. Well, I'll let you guys go. I, I, I wanted to talk. There's so many things to talk about. I, I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere close to through everything I wanted to talk about today. And um, uh, but um, the two things that I want to come back to next time, and we'll, we'll do it in the context of the the rest of the stuff that we get, um, which is a lot uh, in, the, in 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 the last section of the book. I want to look at the 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 description of crossing the boundary that is both. Stephen crossing from sanity into madness, and the experience of crossing into fairy as well. Um, 
and I want to look at these, uh, look at mo- more about these old alliances um, that we were talking about earlier. We will see right after this in this scene the gentleman invoke uh, his old alliances, straining them to the utmost in order to bring darkness, misery, and solitude. Uh, to Jonathan Strange. Um, but of course, we also have Jonathan Strange and his recognition um, about uh, 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 about the, those alliances and John Usklass's uh, alliances. So, okay. So we'll get there. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that stuff next week, and of course we'll get to, we'll get through to the end of the book, and we'll come back to, uh, to Norrell, and we'll come back to Herdview Abbey, and, and it's going to be awesome. So, I'm confident we will completely finish discussing the end of the book next time. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Have a good week, uh, and uh, I hope you 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 manage to you all you know, that you've been keeping up, and 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 will be able to get through to the end of the book next time. And and do do uh, remember sort of try to take note and uh, go ahead and you can start sending me emails now. I'll start I'll start accumulating them um, for uh, topics to discuss in the class after class after next in our our sort of bonus class. So thanks very much, everybody. Good night.